You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to www.3cr.org.au. This program is being broadcast on the land of the Kulin Nations. We recognise their unceded sovereignty and we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We live and work on stolen land. was dying if they said this on the news if they would clarify the picture instead of seeking to confuse if you could see the ice caps melting if you could watch the oceans rise if you could see the consequences right before your eyes if you knew the kids were dying if you could look inside the river where their food comes from filled with cyanide if you could hear the parents pleading if they were looking right at you if you could see the anguish in their hearts what if you knew Bombs are falling if they showed them hit the ground If you could see the bodies flying If you could hear the sound If you could see the rubble where the hospital once stood If you saw the child's lifeless limbs Would you hold them if you could? If you knew that they were lying Every time they spoke for every laser-guided pinprick There were lives lost in the smoke If instead of just the generals They had doctors too to describe the carnage of the cluster bombs What if you knew? They were saying when they think you cannot hear If you understood what they do If for you it was so clear If you knew they shut down the factory in an economic ruse If you could kiss the cheek of the child In the sweatshop that made your shoes Every time we went to war To fight our evil foes They told you we were really fighting For the good of CEOs If you could feel the hunger of the many See the riches of the few If they told it like it is What if you knew huge conspiracy would you leave your suburbs get out of your suv would you hit the streets and fight for all our lives would you hold your ground when the stormtroopers arrive if you knew that the whole planet depended on what you do now would you take a man with the speed our times allow if the pundits told the truth for just a week or two and real life was shown on tv what if you knew and that was David Rovix with What If You Knew. Okay, well, welcome everybody. Uh, you're listening to Uprise Radio. I'm James and joined as always with Jackson. Hello, how are you? And today on the show, we're going to be talking about a book that's come out um, fairly recently called Without Bosses. And we've got the author of that book, Sam Oldman, here to talk about that. And also from the company that uh, put that out. Um, interventions, Alex Etling. So Alex and Sam, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, James. Thanks for having yeah. me. Great to be with you. And I thought we might get started by talking a little bit about uh, the book itself and then, um, you know, perhaps some questions around interventions and um, the idea and the, I guess the changing nature of books and book publishing. So, Sam, you've written this book, uh, which is focusing on trade union movement in the 1970s, particularly the kind of radicalism of that time. And I think, you know, 
in Without Bosses, you go through some of the union radicalism of that period. I guess that's most epitomised by the Green Bands through the BLF in both Sydney and Melbourne. I think maybe to start with, could you talk about why you focused on this period and why you think it was such a radical time for Australian trade unionism? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the 1970s was really the last sort of uh, peak of Australian trade union power and influence, if you like. Um, so around one in every two workers was in a union. Uh, and that had been peaking since basically the end of World War II. Um, and from roughly the 90s, that's been in decline. So today it's around 12% of Australian workers are in, are in a union. And I think it's something like 7% in the private sector. Um, <clears throat> but the period is just... To me, it's just totally fascinating. You know, you had this really incredible confluence between um, economic conditions that were really favourable to union activism and militancy. You had full employment, more or less. Um, Actor, you know, union organisers had been working really hard for at least a couple of decades to build a, a fighting uh, union movement, and then you had this um, the social ferment. You know, they had really grown out of the Vietnam War, anti-war activism, but included sort of critical, you know, critical race movements, indigenous movements, women's liberation. It was really this sort of um, uh, stirring of, of popular opposition to illegitimate power and authority, which trans translated really neatly into sort of radical rank-and-file trade union activism. Um, and so I sort of, I sort of, I was interested in that period to begin with for those exact reasons. I mean, I sort of had been a bit of a student activist in my undergrad years, and I was fascinated by the sort of student movements, uh, particularly in the US of the 70s. But then I sort of stumbled upon these articles of what was happening in Australian uh, trade unions in, around that time, and that sort of led me to, to want to research uh, a little further. I ended up writing a master's thesis on the period. Um, and then that grew, obviously grew into this book with with interventions. Um, but yeah, I mean, what was happening was, was fascinating to me. And it hasn't, I mean, it, it had happened before. I'm talking specifically about the types of actions that were occurring. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, these sorts of actions have happened since, but it was really a, a sort of a perfect storm, if you like, at that time. And, and so much was happening here. In the book, you talk about uh, workers' control and worker cooperatives, workings, you know, these kind of counter to the capitalist kind of framework of a workplace. Um, I was wondering if you could perhaps share a couple of examples of those from the book. And, you know, I guess that in that kind of struggle, that's offering not just, um, you know, the heightened kind of part of unionism, but a, a way of changing the kind of work structures as well. Yeah, so, so radical trade unionism wasn't really a term that was used at the time, at so much at the time. So, so that so activists in the unions and also in the Communist Party, which was really instrumental, um, used this this term workers' control, and they had workers' control conferences attended by unionists and activists and, and community members uh, throughout the early 70s. But basically, it was this idea that unions shouldn't be confined to just sort of negotiating paying conditions and just managing capitalism, um, but could actually play a much more significant role in determining sort of nature of social, political and economic life. So, uh, and, that, and that included having, an, having actual con direct control over what happened in workplaces through sort of workplace committees, um, through, you know, uh, health and safety committees. 
um, but also control over, you know, aspects of the relationship between work and the environment. So the green bands, uh, hopefully, hopefully listeners will be familiar with what green bands are in some way or another, but the, a green band is essentially an environmental strike or a ban on work that, that uh, unions consider environmentally destructive. But a lot of green bands were also sort of social bans, you know, so the first ever what they called a pink ban uh, was, was imposed in 73, um, first internationally to basically protect a, a queer student from being expelled, uh, basically for being queer. Yeah. You know, workers taking on those yeah. kind of moving beyond the theoretical into practical examples of worker run. Yeah, and I should, I, I, I want to also mention, um, yeah, just as you say, so there were, you know, within within what was happening, there was this tendency for workers to, they called it the work end, to, uh, workers mm-hmm. to basically resist sackings and, and refuse to take the sack. So the boss would come along and say, we're going we're gonna to fire, have to lay off, you know, a bunch of you. And workers would just refuse to accept it and show up for work the next day. Because, the, because you know, everyone in the workplace was in a union uh, and, and in the industry, the industry was very unionised. They could arrange sort of secondary support and secondary boycotts and bans. In many cases, they were successful in actually stopping those sackings from happening. But when you institute a work, uh, a work in like that, you're casting off, if you like, managerial authority. So in many cases, those work-ins turned into a, a sort of a deeper thing around workers self-managing their work, you know, working literally without bosses. Uh, and, that, and that had different stuff happening within it as well. I mean, some would say, well, you're just doing the work for the boss, you know. Others would say, others would say you know, well, this is actually a really a radical thing. This shows that we don't need managers, we don't need bosses. You know, if we don't need them to supervise us, why do we need them to sort of own the industries? And then in, in some cases, workers went even further and actually converted their self-managed uh, workplaces into worker-owned cooperatives. Uh, and, and some of those, you know, were, were, uh, some of those continued successfully for, for years uh, in mining and manufacturing and on, uh, on building sites and so on. So and it's a fascinating tendency, really. Something you, really think, interesting you touched on there, Sam, um, you know, with the pink bands and the green bands and unions taking a role that goes beyond, as you said, just negotiating capitalism, negotiating wages, you know, and, and playing a role in, you know, political consciousness raising. And I think that's something that unions, you know, appear to have lost along with other things since the accords and, you know, the watering down of unions' roles. But I, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, about the role that unions historically played in political education and, you know, the amount of workers that would kind of cut their political teeth inside uh, you know, a union framework. And, and these debates were happening at the time and they happen still today. So, I mean, t- just on the left, you know, there's competing ideas. Some, some sort of say, well, unions can't possibly be a, 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 an organ for transformational social change. You know, they're there to manage the relationship between boss and workers. Uh, others say that, well, others point, others would say that, you know, unions can be exactly that, you know, because unions... Um, uh, are the sort of school within which, kind of as you say, workers learn how to exercise, you know, uh, uh, self-determination, you know, exercise control uh, over their day-to-day activities. And from that sort of grows this deeper sort of consciousness around, you know, control over the, the workplace as a whole, control over their working lives and over the industries and society. It raises those really crucial questions around who has control in capitalist society. I mean, bosses and then and workers and, 
uh, and parliaments raises those questions around democracy you know um do, is democracy just about voting every three or four years and then um uh you know sitting back and letting our sort of overlords make decisions on our behalf or is democracy something that you know we can engage in and, and act on sort of in an everyday way um at the point of work through unions um and so i'm, I'm definitely in that sort of latter camp if you like where I, I think the history of trade unions is one of you know um it's one of both unions being these organs for just helping bosses do their job and managing capitalism, but it's also one of gen of you know revolutionary social change, and that's a sort of anarchist tradition or some, you know anarcho syndicalism. Um, Verity Bergman's written really sort of written the book, if you like, on the industrial workers of the world in Australia, the Wobblies, revolutionary industrial unionism. I think it's called. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting you talk about that, Sam, and you mentioned before the influence of the Communist Party. And, you know, I guess I had a question around what you think the role of uh, political organisations are within the, like, radical trade union sort of movement and within workers' sort of movements themselves. Because obviously the Communist Party and, you know, say, even like Maoist traditions and politics were influential within the BLF, for instance. Um, yeah. And then more so today, obviously, the role... The Labor Party has, you know, if you perhaps are a bit further to the left than the Labor Party, it can be yeah. quite disheartening to see how much of an influence the Labor Party has over the union movement and vice versa. Yeah. So, I mean, what kind of role do you think that political parties have within the union movement? Yeah, I mean, crucial, crucial. So the the the, the Communist Party at the time um, played things really well, I think, in, in that the sort of left of the party gained this, this ability to sort of, you know, say to the rest of the party, well, let's look at what's happening in the unions in terms of these quite spontaneous sort of work in actions and, and the green bands, and let's do, see what we can do to sort of support these actions and to push them further and to, to get people together to talk about them and start to develop a bit of a consciousness and a politics around it. Um, other organisations like the Socialist, the Socialist Party, formed out of a split in 71, sort of a Stalinist party, quite sort of dismissive of the of radical trade unionism, you know, basically, well, it's anarchism, it's syndicalism, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't entertain it, you know, the, we should just focus on the on just the party. But um, yeah, as I say, the, the party, well, the Communist Party was really important to the period. Um, a lot of times, not, all, not, not every time, but a lot of times, um, activists in workplaces who are pushing these actions forward belonged to the Communist Party um, and was sort of taking those ideas and, and um, talking to their, to their uh, you know, talking to their colleagues about it and, and um, pushing them forward. And, and you, know, you, you see that today still, you know, if you look at something like the NTU campaign, um, just in, in recent months around, <coughs> excuse me, around some of the Liberals' attacks on higher ed, a lot of the activists, rank and file activists in the NTU who are pushing that struggle forward um, are members of, of sort of socialist groups and have socialist politics. So yeah, it's undeniable that there's a there's a an important place for for a socialist organisation specifically. Yeah, I think you mentioned at the start the really declining number of union membership, and you know it's certainly not you know what it was the influential kind of impact of unions and unionism that um, from the period that you're writing the book. How do you think we can kind of turn that around? I mean, 
can we? <laughs> and, you know, I guess is it, this is a question kind of here a lot or a statement here a lot is that workers in Australia are too comfortable, you know, so that they won't reach that point of conflict or, you know, wanting to re- radicalise their union or their unionism. Maybe the example you just gave is that there is, you know, the NTU is still fighting back. And I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, winning people to the idea of unions um, by actually struggling, uh, fighting within unions and winning. Um, so, you know, the NTU campaign, um, which is looking, shaping up to be, I mean, the crisis in higher education is enormous and it's, it's looking to be quite catastrophic. So, um, you know, the, the campaign is looking to be successful. It's already be, been successful in shooting down that ridiculous jobs protection framework, which is basically a union sort of capitulation to the university bosses and a, and a big sellout. And rank and file activism, just ordinary, uh, ordinary university workers coming together, um, meeting and then taking action. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, that's had, for me, that's had a really observable effect on people starting to think about unions, talk about unions. I mean, I've been a branch chair for the, for the um, secondary teachers union in New Zealand. Even, even union members really don't know a lot about unions. You know, there's the popular ignorance around unions is, is really, is, is a thing. Um, it's really pervasive and it's, it's not, it's not, people's fault necessarily. I mean, there's been a campaign to basically eradicate unions from the face of industrial affairs and popular consciousness for, you know, 30, 40 years um, in Australia and internationally, and it's been pretty successful. So I think there needs to be, you know, uh, more effort directed towards, you know, educating people about unions and what they do. So, you know, when I was a, when I was a branch chair, you could sign someone up to the union and they sort of, they sort of say, well, now what? You know, what's the, you know, or, or it's this notion of if I pay my union dues, what am I going to get in exchange? You know, it's sort of like a transaction. And, and unions have actually played on that. You know, union bureaucracies have a lot to answer for, to be honest. Um, they play on that by offering sort of, you know, discounts to the movies, to, to members. Mm. And, um, mm. and there's obviously, you know, a lot of laziness and um, complacency among full-time uh, union officials and, and and unfortunately, the NCU campaign uh, has, you know, has uh, demonstrated that to some degree. Um, so struggles need to happen within unions as well, and, and they are. Um, yeah, does that sort of answer the question? I mean, what are, what do other people think about yeah. that? I mean, my guess is it's sort of as good as any in, in this regard. Yeah, I just well, we um, everyone is listening to Uprise Radio here, and maybe just yeah, we could just open it up a bit. Um, just we've also got Alex here from Interventions, and we'll get uh, onto some discussion a bit more about um, interventions. But yeah, Alex, did you want to share some um, of your thoughts, you know, on this question, or perhaps on some of the other things we've already discussed? Yeah, well, I mean, this book just like more than anything, it just fills me with hope because it shows that things don't always have to be this sort of dreary life of sort of work, eat, sleep, repeat, that um, at times workers have broken free of being a cog in the machine and they put themselves on the, you know, the stage of history. And that sort of story is quite thrilling. It's certainly thrilling to read it. I imagine it'd be even more thrilling to be part of it. And, um, you know, at, at this time, 
like radical books like this that go through the lessons of the past, they're more important than ever because when you do feel like you're in a, in a position of having to rebuild and just accept where you're at, some of those really hopeful moments uh, are crucial. And so what we've been doing at Interventions is really wanting to support that culture of ideas and bringing out that history and um, yeah, this is a really special book in that it takes this this idea of workers' power and and doing without a boss and how you know workers can run their own affairs and looks at all the different angles of it because there is some contestation about what this even means and uh, you know certainly a lot of debate about what strategy unions should be about, the role of different organisations within unions. So, um, yeah, it's a really fascinating book and, and and I may as well take this opportunity to shoehorn a plug that people should buy it, you know, and you can you can do that um, by going to... Um, you can actually buy it from, from any bookshop or any catalogue online. You just plug in Without Bosses by Sam Oldham and um, or you can go to um, shop.redflag.org.au and um, it'll get mailed out to you. Um, but yeah, it's just one in a in a whole series of books that we will have coming out. It's about re- rebuilding um, a culture of um, radical ideas in Australia. I think there's something about the current period where you know a lot of workers across the world are kind of being forced to uh, you know either take a dramatic amount of time away from their work, working from home, you know, hours reduced. Uh, and, you know, for a lot of people, uh, obviously some people, um, you know, the situation is different, but for a lot of people, there's also an income support aspect to that. Uh, so people are, you know, perhaps not getting as much as they used to, but they're getting some money and they're not having to work as much. And I think it's no surprise that with these things, we're seeing an uptake in radicalism, not just on the streets, you know, in America or as part of the Black Lives Matters protest and things like that. But I think we're seeing a, a kind of re-energization of people's political consciousness as well to say, you know, actually, I don't want to be working, you know, 40, 50 hours a week in this job that I hate. I've got some time at home now, you know, where I can read a book like Without Bosses or I can engage in online forums or things like that. What are other people's thoughts on, I guess, this moment, which is, you know, obviously devastating for a lot of people and things like that, but is there an opportunity that we can start to rethink the way that we're modelling our work practices? Yeah, well, I, I think that we're living in a time full of possibility. So you see these inspiring mass mobilisations, particularly, you know, in the heart of the capitalist system in America, but you've also got these frightening movements of the far right and really like a severe attack on our living standards in the wake of the coronavirus. And so, you know, this political moment, it, it, it throws up the question of um, who's going to win, you know, who's interests, there's counterposed interests. Mm. And, you know, the business interests, they want to make ordinary people pay for this economic crisis and they'll succeed unless, you know, the listers of 3CR can organise an effective counterpower to that. And, you know, ideas, you start with ideas, you start with organising where you're at 
And so that's the role of something like with our bosses to learn those lessons. And yeah, I mean, it's no surprise that people are, there is a flourishing of, of book learning and reading groups going on and people are, are searching for these different It is a really interesting time. And adding on to what James said earlier about the kind of changes to people's working lives that have been forced um, through this health crisis and the subsequent economic crisis. I mean, we're also seeing here in Melbourne that a lot of people can't work from home and are being forced, you know, for economic, personal economic means, but also there's a lot of pressure from society that service industries continue to work. And we're seeing a spike of COVID cases in those service industries here in here in Melbourne. So a lot of people are forced to take that risk regardless, you know, to keep the capitalist machine marching on, you know, to keep, you know, we are in service to the economy is the way it's so often framed in the mainstream media. You know, we've got to make these sacrifices. So I think that's starting to make people wake up as well. But I wondered if you guys could reflect on, I, I imagine, Sam, I haven't read the book yet, which I'm disappointed in and I'd love to read, but I imagine the beginnings of radicalised unionism is often making decisions collectively to break the law. And we have some really restrictive uh, union uh, uh, laws here in Australia that prevent people from taking strike action or taking sit-ins without the, you know, express and um, explicit and long agreed for permission of their bosses or organisations. And I I wondered if you guys could kind of reflect on, you know, how you build critical mass to take risks in a union and also the kind of rise of new organisations that are, that are deciding not even to register as official unions so that they can avoid censure and control by something like the Registered Organisation Commission. So I just was thinking about, yeah, talking about tactics, like, you know, from your experience, the two of you, uh, you know, how do you start to talk about, well, taking a risk and, 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 and breaking some of these restrictive laws to, to prompt change, you know, in the face of the type of, you know... Um, Restrictions that workers are so often put under, as in what's happening right now? Yeah, well, exactly as you say, Jackson, um, the whole, that whole period would have been, would have looked very different if it wasn't for uh, what was what's sort of called the penal powers uh, struggle in 69. So but basically in 69, there was a confrontation between uh, between unionised workers and um, the industrial relations, the, the sort of uh, blunt end of the industrial relations apparatus, like, you know, laws to, to put massive fines, uh, to impose massive fines on workers breaking anti-strike uh, clauses within uh, agreements. Anyway, in Victoria, there was uh, basically a, 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 a spontaneous sort of general strike uh, uh, in opposition to the arrest of Carrie O'Shea. I mean, I'm sure a lot of your listeners would be really familiar with the story. But but sometimes what's not often talked about as much is that there were repeat repeats of this action in 71, uh, a couple of sort of less significant clashes throughout the 70s. But then again in 79, um, the police tried to arrest, uh, I think it was nine organisers of the, of the Metal Workers Union in Western Australia. And there was basically another repeat of the O'Shea case in Western Australia in 79. So, and, and some of the internal sort of communiques within the, within the Fraser government, the federal government, basically was saying, we, we would love to sort of come down, because they, they started to introduce anti-union uh, legislation in the later 70s to, to you know, the Industrial Relations Bureau, they outlawed secondary boycotts in 77. They couldn't use a lot of the legislation. They simply couldn't use it, and they knew they couldn't. 
because workers were too powerful. To uh, you know, unions unions had too much strength, and the threat of a of something like the O'Shea case happening again uh, was just too great, and they didn't want to risk sort of a pitched battle that they were going to lose, and then only lose face on. Um, so they couldn't use the, the legislation. But j just as you say, you know that that I think that's an incredible fact of history. You know, that, that re really what it shows is that when workers, when ordinary people come together and it starts in literally in workplaces, people talking to each other, people organizing, often in the beginning around something as just as simple as, you know, pay and conditions leading to the sort of bigger questions, um, then ordinary people have the, the power to confront, um, you know, the, the most powerful institutions in society, um, the police and, and, uh, and all the rest. You've been listening to Uprise Radio with Jackson and James. And today's show, we've been talking to Sam and Alex. And if you want to get a copy of Sam's book, you can go to the Interventions website and find a copy there. We've got more of this interview uh, in which we talked a bit more about interventions with Alex and continued discussion on the Australian Union movement. Uh, we'll have that for you in two weeks' time. But for now, thanks for listening and see you next time. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.